Hello, and welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor. And I'm Jim Townsend. And we're so glad you can join us. Today, we're happy to be joined by a very special guest, Fiona Hill, for a discussion on all things Russia and what we should expect from Moscow this coming year. We're now approaching the second anniversary of Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine, and so we'll examine the Kremlin's views of where the war stands and its prospects for success going forward. We'll talk about what's happening inside Russia, including dynamics in the run-up to Russia's own presidential elections in March, and we'll look more broadly, including Russia's views of the instability in the Middle East and the strengthening of its relationship with other like-minded partners in Iran uh, and North Korea and China. And because Moscow sees 2024 as such a pivotal year, we know Moscow will not only be looking to increase pressure on the front lines in Ukraine, but also against Western societies, first and foremost, the United States ahead of our critical elections this November. So we've got no shortage of issues to discuss, so let's get to it. Fiona, it's really great to have you with us. Oh, thanks so much, Andrew and Jim. It's great to be with you. A quick uh, introduction. Uh, Fiona is Senior Fellow in the Center on the United States and Europe with the Foreign Policy Program at the Brookings Institution. She also holds the position of Chancellor at Durham University in the United Kingdom and was recently elected to the Harvard University Board of Overseers. All right. So debating, I think first and foremost, I want to start with what's going on in Ukraine. Um, And I think it's really hard to miss Putin's optimism uh, and confidence heading into 2024. So just want to get your sense of what's behind the confidence that we're seeing from Putin and your sense of how Putin is seeing what's happening in Ukraine and really, I think, um, on the kind of global stage more broadly. Well, it's really very much determined, um, as I'm sure both of you would agree, by what's happening on the actual military battlefield. You know, if we've been talking about this, which we have done, uh, of course, over the uh, course of these last two years, you know, that initial year was quite a shock to the Russian system. First of all, Ukraine didn't capitulate. It wasn't overrun. Uh, None of the things that Putin intended with his special military operation came to pass. And then over, you know, the course of... uh, uh, 2022, a lot of the land that and um, territory that Russia initially grabbed got rolled back by the Ukrainians. But of course, you know, over the, the, the next year, 2023, it's kind of become a stalemate. Now, actually, a stalemate can also be thought of in some, you know, different ways, of course. I mean, but for Putin, that's a good thing, the stalemate. I mean, one might could argue that the Ukraine, it could be too, if Ukraine can actually maintain a very strong defensive posture. What Putin is betting on is that Ukraine cannot for a number of reasons. First of all, Russia has had colossal losses of manpower and also equipment. And uh, that, again, would have seen like a massive setback uh, a year or so ago. But Russia has somehow managed uh, to stem uh, its manpower problems, obviously in some creative and pretty unpleasantly creative ways, emptying out the prison system, relying very heavily on non-ethnic Russians. And, you know, we can talk about that later because that's having some knock-on effects on the domestic front. But the problems that it had in equipment uh, have been resolved by forging much closer relationships. And again, this is going to play out as we talk through this uh, today with countries like Iran for the production of drones and, you know, some other uh, technical equipment, and also with North Korea for ammunition and shells. And Ukraine, on its part, actually hasn't been able to benefit quite so much from 
the military support that it had in the initial year from uh, partners in uh, in the West, in Europe, in the United States, Japan, South Korea, you know, for example, for all a variety of different reasons. A large part of that reason that we've ourselves realized that our own stockpiles and our own pipeline of production is not at all adequate for the kind of war that's being fought in Ukraine. All of us in Europe, uh, the United States and elsewhere were thinking that we'd be dealing with the kinds of wars that we've had, you know, more recent in the Middle East, insurgencies, you know, kind of limited interventions. Not that we'd be fighting, you know, the good old conventional wars of with loads of ammunition and shells and something that looks like a mixture of World War One with trench warfare and those kind of artillery exchanges and the 21st century war, you know, with drones. Now, interesting, I mean, Russia hadn't really thought about the 21st century warfare aspect of this. It hadn't produced drones uh, prior to this, but now it is. Uh, and, you know, it's not just relying on uh, on Iran as it had been before. So Russia has actually, you know, adapted to all of this. It's set up a wartime economy. Obviously, Ukraine, you know, has no chance, uh, choice but to do that. But Ukraine doesn't have the same manpower reserves as Russia do. Uh, Russia does. We're seeing Ukraine battling now with conscription, you know, how to uh, maintain uh, manpower. Russia's just got a much larger population, you know, to draw upon. You know, so Putin is looking at a lot of this right now and thinking he's actually in a better position on the battlefields, notwithstanding, you know, all of the problems. And that in a war of attrition or stalemate where, you know, both sides are dug in, it doesn't look actually like Ukraine uh, can launch an offensive or Russia can either. But if it's it's all about now just holding the lines and defending them, well, Russia might actually be over the longer term in a better position. That's why Putin has this optimism. It's also then a question of support for Ukraine from Europe and elsewhere. The military yeah. support is going to take a while, as we've all discussed and you discuss constantly on this podcast, to build up uh, the military capacity inside Ukraine itself, as well as uh, in its uh, uh, defence partners. The UK has signed a defensive agreement, uh, defence agreement with uh, with Ukraine, but we all know that, Ukraine, that the United Kingdom is in pretty sorry uh, situation with its own defence capacity. That's the same for many other European countries. There are constraints on South Korea, for example, uh, which actually does have a very robust uh, military industrial complex for supplying Ukraine, constitutional and other political uh, constraints. And Russia is now attacking Ukraine's own capacity and its military industrial complex. It's switched from attaching, attacking its energy infrastructure to more of its uh, military um, industrial infrastructure. So if you look at it from that way, I think Putin thinks that he's in uh, a much better position than he was before. And he's optimistic that um, Russia can uh, prevail over Ukraine in that regard. And then, of course, there's all of the debacle here in the United States in Congress, in which it looks you know, increasingly unlikely rather than likely as the political campaign in the United States moves into gear in 2024, that uh, the United States will fall down in continuing its financial and uh, military support to uh, Ukraine, and then Russia then assesses that other countries are not going to be able to step up to fill that void. So Putin's now pressing his perspective optimistically. But I think you know, as, we, as we talk about this more, on the other fronts, so outside of the physical battlefront, there's quite a lot of reason to think that Russia isn't in the great position that it might be. Yeah, no, I agree. Like I think, to be. Yeah, the thing that I worry so much about, I mean, I think you laid it out perfectly in, in it, it's of course it's true that the front lines haven't changed very significantly in the past many many months 
But I think we also know that it's really a race by both sides to rebuild their offensive capacity. And so if the Western funding doesn't come through, um, if Russia gains some sort of advantage in that sense, I think as you've laid out, then they do have the possibility of at least making some more gains. And I think the headlines today, you know, mm -hmm. that they've ta taken parts of Avdika. So they are at least starting to, the momentum has shifted and Ukraine is retaking more territory than Ukraine is able to regain itself. And so, I mean, this is a very basic question, but what is it that you think Putin wants at this phase of the conflict? Because I think it's it's an important point to highlight, because even though we talk about stalemate, I think you would make the point, but, you know, I'll turn it over to you, which is that Putin's goals haven't changed. And I wonder, you know, what your what your sense is of what he's playing for at this point in time. Yeah, look, and I think it's important, Andrea, that you're talking about at this point in time, right? Because there's a lot of debate about, you know, can he do, still have his maximalist goals? Well, he might not try to get them all at once, right? It, I don't think his goals have changed in any way. But he's thinking he's playing a long game now, even though he might also be playing a short medium game. He's kind of thinking, you know, over time, you know, I might get more of what I want. But right now, I think I can get what I've got and I can get, you know, some acknowledgement of this. So he's using the fact and it, there's a psychological game here as much as there is a military game, a psyops, you know, aspect of this. As you're talking about Adivika, look, you know, the Ukrainians, you know, took territory back, but we're chipping away again, again at it. If Ukraine doesn't settle now uh, and lock in what it has, and this is the point that General Milley was making, you know, uh, last year before the Ukrainian military offensive, it's going to get a lot worse for Ukraine. I mean, Putin's in that classic mafia play. I'm going to keep on beating you, beating you up, and it's just going to get a lot worse. Why don't you just stop now? And that's my concession. So that's what Putin is offering. Putin is basically saying, I'll stop beating you up. I'll stop shelling you, I'll stop doing this. You just acknowledge what I've got right now. Yeah. And that doesn't mean that that's where he's going to stop because all of his other signals, you know, suggest that there's still more, you know, to be got later by different means. Maybe by, you know, accusing the Ukrainians later on of rupturing a ceasefire. I mean, we saw that in the Minsk agreements over and over and over again. Or by political means, pressure, just keep on eroding, you know, support for Ukraine. So the challenge for Ukraine right now is to present a pretty robust defensive posture. You know, Ukraine symbol is the trident. There's three elements to that. It's trying to keep the battlefield, you know, where it is and stop, you know, the Russians from moving further. It's getting defense agreements that actually look meaningful with like the United Kingdom with other countries and more, you know, support. And it's getting diplomatic support for Ukraine's basic position that it's the wronged party, not that it's the party that just has to placate Russia and give things up to Russia. Because, you know, Putin's just basically saying this can all stop if you do what, you know, what I say right now. But how critical, I mean, I how I agree, but how critical do you think he sees 2024? Because I think if you think about it, right, there, so there's obviously what's happening in the U.S. Congress. There'll be the outcome of the U.S. presidential election, which seems like it would have a fairly significant impact on future U.S. support for Ukraine. And, you know, slowly but surely, very late um, Western economies are, are are starting to increase defense industrial output. The EU is making announcements about increasing production of ammunition. So if we can get through 2024 in an okay position and Ukraine can hold those lines, it is plausible that then they will have the ability, if everything goes right in the West in this year, to 
train and re-equip and form new units that then could potentially apply more pressure on Russia in 2025. So I would think from Putin's perspective, 2024 is quite quite critical. Um, so how do you think his own election, the U.S. election, how are these things factoring into how he'll approach this coming year? Well, I think that's spot on. I mean, I, that's exactly you know what I what I've said myself that you know he does see this as a, maybe not a make or break here, but definitely one of those you know inflection points. Yeah. And you know, kind of, he wants to obviously make sure that the negative aspects of all of this, from our perspective, Ukraine's perspective, uh, are the ones that play out. You know, using the the threat of Trump, um, even if Trump doesn't get elected, or you know, kind of something you know, kind of happens here in twenty twenty four, is super useful because we're all talking about it. Putin doesn't have to. We're talking about the fact that Trump would pull out of NATO or likely pull out of NATO, even though, of course, there are now uh, there's a bill that's gone through Congress that would make it. Um, impossible for or very difficult for Trump to do so. But the fact that Trump would start talking about how um, NATO's meaningless or he wouldn't, you know, kind of uh, allow the United States to defend uh, a NATO member devaluing Article 5, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, all the things that Trump has said in the past, that plays out very effectively. The fact that Trump doesn't think very much of Ukraine. And in fact, there's a, a bright and very straight line from his first impeachment trial to the war in Ukraine, in which, you know, Trump made it very clear to Putin that Ukraine was his for grabs. Putin, um, you know, knows that, you, that Trump doesn't think much of Ukraine, thinks that Ukraine is a personal adversary and wanted to exploit Ukraine and, you know, try to extort uh, Zelensky. I mean, how is there any sign of support for Ukraine's position in anything, you know, that Trump has ever done, you know, or said, and he talks about essentially giving Ukraine up in a, in a heartbeat or you know, in what does he say, 24 hours or whatever it is that he's, you know, kind of given himself to resolve, you know, this situation every time he talks about it. Can I said, he's got his own election as well that, you know, Putin has. Uh, and I think actually that uh, does count something for Putin. I mean, he wants to be anointed with an overwhelming support. And, you know, that is consequential too. So he has to show that he's really gained something in Ukraine because we know that the um, Russian population actually is not all happy with this war. You are starting to get pushback. You know, you're getting this, uh, you know, we can talk a bit more about this, Mr. Nadezhdin, you know, whose name means hope. <laughs> There's a little hope here for Russians who are um, opposed to the war that, you know, there might be actually a candidate that might pull them out of it. Putin, of course, is letting all this run out, but he knows that you, that Russians would like to see the war end, but on their terms, without giving anything up, without losing, without paying reparations, you know, this kind of thing. So, you know, he wants that to kind of play out into him getting an overwhelming um, election uh, mandate, you know, basically so they can keep on going forever. That strengthens um, his position. And then he's hoping that beyond the United States in places like France, you know, as we start to move towards the end of Macron's term, that Marine Le Pen looks more like she's going to be the next French president. Uh, or in Germany, alternative for Deutschland or some of the other more reaction anti-establishment parties really get a grip in local elections that are coming up. We've got elections in Germany, you know, towards the end of this year, in Brandenburg, Saxony and Thuringia, which are already looking like, you know, they might shift in the direction of parties that are much more amenable to doing a deal with Russia at Ukraine's expense. You know, so it's that kind of thing that Putin is, as you said, hoping will play out, that Ukraine will not get traction on the defence perspective. And they're also, you know, kind of Russia's saber-rattling and fear-mongering will also work the psychological operations. I was quite startled to see so many articles in the press, you know, right now about... Europeans talking about the risks of a war with, yeah. with Russia. 
There's been a huge uptick. Yeah, yeah it's really... Where's that coming from? That's coming from Russia and Russian propaganda, you know, filtering in through all of these other parties that, you know, the Baltic states are next or this country's next or he might set off a nuclear weapon here or he might set off a nuclear weapon there. That's all part of Putin's plan, you know, to really rattle everybody and to make Ukraine, you know, towards the uh, negotiating table on his terms. Jim's going to be so upset with me, but I'm going to sneak in one more question. I do it. This is I to it. go I'm, back. I'm the- ready. I'm not hurt. I'm ready. I was just <laughs> signaling just to, you know, put the flag in. So that's okay. on my toes. Um, I wanted to go back to the Trump's um, potential policies towards Ukraine and Russia more broadly under Trump, because it's obviously a question that I'm sure you get all the time, but all of us working in the transatlantic community from our European interlocutors, our colleagues who are curious and quite anxious about what that world could look like. And it's really, I find, I mean, on the one hand, it seems like a simple answer um, in terms of like, well, if you take Trump at face value, he has a track record on these issues and you can see quite clearly what his views have been. But, but sometimes I wonder, you know, some people will make the case, well, maybe it depends on who's around them. And if someone can marshal an effective argument or present it in a way that elicits a different response, that maybe something could be different. Is that just wishful thinking? But I mean, what is your view? I mean, I think you've, you know, presumably been the closest to Trump working on Russia and Ukraine related issues. What do you think a a Trump second presidency would mean? It's it's all about him, not about other people. People are fantasizing if they think that, you know, somebody else is going to sway him. It's about he reads how he reads the situation. If he thinks he could be humiliated in some way by anything that Putin's doing, he might react. You know, so Putin himself knows that. That's why I say there's the idea of Trump might be actually more effective than the actual reality of Trump. Putin didn't get a lot of the things that he wanted from Trump because Trump didn't always want to be, you know, shown up. Trump's not doing anything for Putin. What he wants is the reflected glory of being you know, kind of in the company or liked by a strong man like Putin. I mean, look at the way he talks about Xi or even Kim Jong-un and, you know, there's, you know, in the past, or Erdogan or Orban. You know, he wants to be the big, strong guy. He wants big, strong guys to, you know, basically be his friend, you yeah. know, and kind of looking looking up to him. But if Putin says anything in the slightest bit derogatory, that could set him off. Or if he looks like he's being humiliated in somewhere, people talk about US weakness. That reflects on him, Right. So there is that element, but it's really about how he reads the situation at a particular time. If Ukraine looked like a winner early on and Trump was there, he might support the winner, sort of. But he wouldn't want to give them anything. But he might not be, you know, quite as negative. Or, you know, if he thought that, you know, basically Putin looked like a loser. But, you know, right now Putin doesn't look like a loser. I mean, that's, I mean, he wants to be, in a way, Putin with no yeah. checks and balances, the czar, you know, the king, the person who's kind of recognized as the top of the heap with the vertical of power. And, you know, he would would just like to be that person. It's, you know, that image, the iconic image. Everybody knows who Vladimir Putin is. I mean, even if they don't know his name, they'll say, oh, yeah, the Russian leader. Everybody knows who Trump is. And Trump wants everyone to know who he is. It's, It's that kind of aura, you know, kind of about Putin that Trump wants to be reflected. He doesn't want to be humiliated in front of Putin. He doesn't, you know, kind of want to have to ask Putin for anything. He, he, he wants to be basically sitting down with Putin as an equal, you know, deciding big things. Yeah. The whole thing that uh, in, um, there was a feature of the previous administration is Trump wanted to sit down with Putin and do a 1980s style huge um, nuclear agreement. 
I used to kind of joke to myself that he'd like, you know, for start it to be the super Trump arms reduction treaty. <laughs> you know, that would be kind of how it would be. He wanted to be Gorbachev. He won and Reagan, both of them at once. He wanted to be, you know, H.W. Bush, though he wasn't, you know, quite as big as Reagan. He wanted to be there being the big guys doing the big things. And so, you know, if there was an opportunity, but remember, he's always saying he'd mediate, he'd like a Nobel Peace Prize. It's all just about what Trump gets out of something. So, you know, the idea that somebody else is going to be, yeah, but they could maybe nudge him in a certain direction, but ultimately it'll all come down to what he thinks is in it for him personally. Yeah. Okay, Jim. Wow. Well, after that, I, my, my stomach is just, you know, nauseous thinking of those old days and all of that, uh, we all went through Fiona, particularly you. I mean, that's that's really a glimpse back into the abyss. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I, that that image, though, what you were just describing, really uh, has got to everyone. We're going to have to remind everyone of that. You know, as we get closer into the presidential campaigns, and uh, Andrea, this is not my question. This is just my therapy session after hearing all, all about Trump. Uh, we really are going to have to get that that perspective out there. People have forgotten. I mean, we have such a short memory span and we've put him as some kind of mythical you know distorted character uh character frame now uh, and we've got to remind everyone we're, what we're dealing with here so fiona thank you very much for that we sh that should be the headline of this podcast but 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 i but i want to go back to putin <laughs> someone who doesn't scare me as much as trump does but um he's actually putin's not as capricious yeah no and you're putin does think about the state and actually putin's quite predictable I mean, come on, we've had him for 25 years now. Yeah. I mean, he, I mean, he will do some things that, you know, surprises, but he's predictably surprising. He's <laughs> you know, I think that's part of the point where Trump's just always all over the place, always about him. Putin's not always about him. Yeah. I mean, yes, he's about him. And he's about his power and influence. But he thinks about a Russian state and Russian history. Trump knows nothing about American yeah. history, <laughs> apart from how he's picked and choose anything that reflects on him. He knows I very know. little about the world. He doesn't care to know. But yeah. he's also not stupid. He's very clever, is Trump. Yeah. He's very clever. Yeah, you know, I, I look on Putin as a professional authoritarian, whereas Trump is an amateur trying to become a professional authoritarian. Oh, he's a professional authoritarian as well, but it's just, it's about him. It's not about the state. Yeah. It's about <laughs> his own pure personal yeah. power. It's not about his profession. And it's not about the people around him. He doesn't have a Patrushev or a Lavrov or the state apparatus. He hates the state. Yes, the yeah. the yeah. Putin loves the state. 60% of people in Russia, maybe more now, right, since the war, work for the state. Putin's not going to dismantle the state. He is the deep state. And I think ultimately that's what Trump wants is to have the state be him. I am the state. And then he'll crown himself. And uh, yeah. well, uh, thank you for all of that. And uh, and by the way, thank you for the great work that you did uh, trying to put him in a box. So just on behalf of all the listeners and uh, really look on you as a real hero in all this. So, but, uh, but let's go back to Putin just for a second and, and talk about what he's doing outside the theater of Ukraine and the fighting. Um, they, they have really launched this very interesting diplomatic offensive uh, mm -hmm. uh, around the world, uh, trying to, uh, to put together his own allies, trying to put together um, coalitions trying to uh, really lead an effort with China uh, to show that there's another way. Uh, and this is our way. And it's better than what you're, you know, and it's been interesting watching Shoigu and uh, Lavrov and all kinds of emissaries going into all parts of the world trying to pull this together. 
what do you think about all of that and how successful the Russians will actually be knocking on the door in the so-called global South, knocking on the door and saying, we're from Moscow and we're here to help? Well, it's, it's basically like a, a global version of the Bolshevik revolution, right? Because, I mean, the Bolsheviks just said they were the majority. Putin's saying we're the global majority. They actually weren't. They were the minority. But in any case, it's that whole idea that if you get this sort of sense of momentum, you can take over. And the Bolsheviks were railing against the Ancien Regime. And that's what Putin's doing, even though he is the Ancien Regime, the old yeah. regime. I mean, he is basically saying end of Pax Americana. Everything for him now has become a proxy against the United States. You know, everyone says that Ukraine is a proxy war between the United States and Russia. But I think, actually, Putin's trying to turn Ukraine, and I don't think he succeeded, honestly, Gaza, Israel, anywhere that he can into a proxy in which he's pulling, you know, the rest of the, the world as he can, the global majority, to topple the United States from its position. I'm on, you know, some bizarre, you know, various WhatsApp threads and things like this now, you know, watching people you know, want to have the United States kicked off the UN for what's happening in Gaza and Israel. Putin has very successfully diverted all attention away from the atrocities that Russia has committed right. in places like Chechnya back in the 1990s, in Ukraine, in Syria, with Assad, you know, leveling Aleppo and, you know, helping Assad, you know, wipe out, you know, Syria and the Syrian opposition and said, look at what's happening over here. And all the whataboutism. Now, you know, obviously, it's actually kind of an easy door to push open. The United States would never have invaded Iraq in 2003. That's the original sin. And the rest of the world feels like, well, you know, the United States went marauding in Iraq. It did this and that and the other, killed hundreds of thousands of people. No one was ever held accountable. And now the United States is asking us to hold Russia accountable. And, you know, kind of we've kind of had enough of all of this. The, the rest of the world, you know, doesn't want to be in a block, you know, and make choices between the US and China. It doesn't want a new Cold War. Everywhere you go, you know, outside of the, you know, the so-called collective West, you find a desire for a world without a hegemon, not a non-aligned movement, but a kind of more transactional. We've had our colleagues at the Centre for um, European Reform and um, European and Council for Relations, I think, so rather call it um, a, um, an a la carte world where people want to have you know, kind of an international system, but they want to kind of, you know, take what they want from it. And, you know, it's very easy to blame the United States, you know, make sure the United States still takes responsibility for everything, but then, you know, kind of want to go and, you know, do your own thing. So Putin and China and she and everyone are saying Pax Americana is gone. This yeah. is our opportunity to get rid of it. There's nothing else in its place. But, you know, this is our sort of time to topple the hegemon, you know, reclaim multipolarity. He's been talking about this for years, but he sees a real opportunity in doing this. So he's trying to make common cause with... um you know, basically all of those who are uh, excoriating Israel for what it's done in Gaza, he's trying to make, you know, common cause with China and North Korea and, you know, everybody else he can in the Asia Pacific or in Latin America with Venezuela and Mexico and everyone wants to push back against the United States there with African countries, South Africa, you know, for example. And he has this benefit, which, you know, from a European or other perspective is pretty bizarre, of the fact the rest of the world not thinking that Russia was ever an empire. Yeah. Because Russia never had overseas colonies. Most of us of the world thinks that, you know, what's happening in Ukraine is just yet another European territorial dispute that's trying to pull the rest of the world in. Russia's territory is expanded and contracted. This is just, you know, Russia having a beef with a former, you know, province. This isn't, you know, a colony. How can Ukraine be a colony? First of all, you know, they're white people. They weren't overseas, you know, for example. 
colonizers, you know, really go into, you know, the, the world of black and brown people. It's been racialized and Putin's playing that to the hill too. It's just so absurd in many respects because, of course, uh, Russia has colonized non-ethnic Russian Siberian people, Azerbaijan, you know, Armenia, Georgia, Central Asia, taken territory from China and, you know, moved into, you know, kind of areas where, you know, there's a very distinct non-Russian, you know, identity and where people would fall into the same categories as this is being framed, you know, globally. But Putin's able to play that because during the Cold War, Russia was the basically champion of the non-aligned movement, the national liberation movements, the champion of uh, South Africa against apartheid, and many of uh, the, meet, uh, the the movements in Angola, Mozambique, et cetera, against you know, white colonizers and settlers. And Russia also benefits, and this is a slightly weird one, but I've been trying to mention this as often as I can, from the fact that they have Pushkin as the national poet and bard because you know, Pushkin's African ancestry was played to the hilt during the Cold War, and Russia's saying, you know, what other European country would have a black man, you know, as their, you know, national uh, treasure, as their national poet, their national writer, their national bard? Um, right. you know, and this is, you know, something that we kind of obviously don't even pay attention to. But Russia is playing all of this and presenting itself. I don't know really, honestly, how successfully, but as the champion of the global south. Now, do all countries take Russia seriously in this? Probably not. But they also find this beneficial. Because, you know, Russia is kind of leading the charge against uh, the United States and pointing out the United States hypocrisy and hubris, even though Russia is guilty of the above. And I think the most telling example here is how Russia's relationship with Israel has just changed dramatically, not just on October 7th, but before that, as Russia drew closer to Iran and more dependent on Iran. And then Russia is also now trying to uh, play up you know, it's ties to the Arab world and Hamas and the Palestinians, et cetera, also to offset uh, the drawing closer to Iran, you know, with countries like Saudi Arabia and others in the Gulf. It's got really complex. I mean, basically, Russia is now a fly in every ointment and Russia is an element, you know, in every um, challenge for the United States in obviously Europe and Ukraine, in the Middle East, in the Asia Pacific, and, you know, also in Africa and, uh, and Latin America. So yeah, I, I think this to the hilt. Yeah, I think his response to the Hamas attack has been just a really, a, to me, really telling. I mean, as yes. you just said, they have the, had this historically important relationship with Israel. They've long prided themselves, prided themselves on being the balancer in the region, the country who can talk to everyone. And they've basically just jettisoned that role and downgraded relations with Israel. And to me, it just really speaks volumes to what you were saying is like that this is the opportune time for Putin to just really lean in and break this U.S.-led international system. I think the way I, and, and, and as you said, they, they've had these goals for a very long time. But to me, with the invasion of Ukraine, it feels like Putin's point of no return. Like he really, I mean, he just seems like even more hardened in his resolve. He has fewer options to pursue now. And um, I think it's translating, and this is like the pivot to my question in, ter- in terms of what's happening domestically inside Russia. Yeah. It, it really, this, it's the confrontation, not, it's with Ukraine, but with the wider West. It's an existential struggle. The West, the United States in particular, is out to dismember Russia. I mean, that whole bit has become the key organizing principle of his regime and domestic policy with the wartime economy and everything and of and of foreign policy. And so to me, this really seems like it's here to stay. And I wonder if you could just say a little bit 
you know, what, what do you, what are you taking note of in terms of changes inside Russia? Things like the, I mean, you mentioned wartime economy, but some of the militarization, the youth groups, the changing of the textbooks, it feels like he is really trying to reshape Russian society around this idea of confrontation. But I, but I, I wonder how you see it. No, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, we've gone back to the past. I mean, he, 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 he didn't get as much traction he was hoping with with Nazis in Ukraine or you know many of the other tropes uh, that um, he, he tried out when you know first invaded. Nobody bought that really internally. I mean, some obviously seemed to in the military and you know others when they were captured and they were talking about looking for Nazis in Ukraine. It played in some quarters, but it wasn't getting traction uh, because a lot of people just didn't believe it and didn't see it. But I mean, this is kind of like Stalin in World War II. In fact, he's going back to Stalin. I mean, we're thinking about, you know, that whole period where, you know, after Stalin suffered so many setbacks after Operation, you know, Barbarossa and the invasion of the Nazis, you know, eventually he embraces Zhukov and, you know, starts a whole new framing of, of World War II, a kind of, you know, nationalist framing, you know, kind of uh, patriotic framing, uh, but also, you know, kind of against fighting, you know, the, the Teutonic West, not just, uh, you know, Germany in some respects as well. And, you know, we're seeing all of that, the glorification of Stalin again, you know, all of these kinds of uh, things happening and so many Stalinist approaches to repression, all of the denunciations, you know, that are happening. As you said, the textbooks, it's just, you know, it's back to the past. I mean, it's 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 informing the, the, the present and it's kind of selling the past as the future as well. This is a real danger, you know, when we start to, you know, think forward. Putin's not selling a future for Russia. He's selling a future for Russia that just looks like so many other junctures in Russia's or the Soviet Union's or the empire's past. However, there is actually some areas here, you know, I mentioned in passing Mr. Nadezhdin, you know, before the kind of little glimmer of hope of, uh, of an alternative um, candidate there, who's clearly got the permission of the Kremlin uh, to be running here, otherwise he wouldn't. But, you know, people are, you know, showing up to um, uh, sign up for him. And that's a important signaling for the Kremlin to see where points of frustration at the at best anger, you know, at the worst, or opposition, you know, at even worst, you know, could be uh, manifesting themselves. So we'll be watching that very carefully. And, you know, I wonder at some point if all the people who support Nijezdin might end up in a gulag or, you know, under some uh, more oppression later on once, once they've, you know, shown themselves and shown how serious they might be of, you know, adding um, uh, the support. Putin does, however, also need a real election in the sense of, you know, real alternative. He, he wants to be anointed, but he wants to also look legitimate. He wants to look like he's got, you know, had some competition. He's got overwhelming some success. And there are some real signs of trouble no. inside uh, Russia. I mean, a wartime economy is not a recipe also for future growth and prosperity. I mean, it can truck along as, you know, kind of uh, wartime economies do, but there'll be all these distortions. You'll have to deal with that, you know, at some point uh, later on. He hasn't had as much luck as he was hoping about, you know, quickly being able to find new sources for Russian um, gas, I mean, he's hoping that China will pick that up, but the Chinese also don't like dependence, just like, you know, the, and they saw what happened to the Germans, they're going to be playing a, you know, harder bargain. I mean, yes, he's still selling his oil, but, you know, the Russian economy is getting also very dependent on those kind of sales. And, you know, it's lost a lot of its innovative capacity. I mean, we've got 300 odd thousand people killed as well as maimed. They're out of the mix, you know, 1 million plus people who have fled overseas. That's actually a lot of your you know, real potential for moving the country forward. I mean, yes, Russia's got more manpower 
than um, uh, Ukraine has. But if we think back to World War II, when Ukraine uh, was part of the Soviet Union, and you know the Soviet Union was devastated with millions, tens of millions of people killed, it was a much larger country. Ukraine was part, Kazakhstan was part. Those huge losses weren't just spread on the Russian population. And that's what's happening now. And we're seeing, you know, for example, in Bashkortostan, one of the Urals republics next to um, Tatarstan, one of the major Muslim republics, also a major oil and gas producing republic, a lot of backlash now. So the, the burdens that have been put on the non-ethnic Russians, 20% of the population, you know, uh, in uh, the war in Ukraine. Russia still has a large Muslim population. I think that's another element of why Putin's all in on, you know, supporting uh, Palestinians in Gaza and Hamas and in the um, uh, Middle East because of its own Muslim population. Some of the Muslim population have extensive ties to the Middle East, including the Tatars uh, um, and um, the Chechens and many others. When the Russian Empire was expanding into the North Caucasus, for example, and taking territories in the Ottoman Empire, a large number of North Caucasian peoples, uh, the Circassians and others, and um, what we now know as Chechens, moved to the Middle East, uh, to the Ottoman Empire, and ended up in places like Jordan and in the Gulf. And there's been, you know, during the Chechen Wars of the 1990s, we had all kinds of circular movements of fighters, including from Jordan and Saudi Arabia. We had um, Amin Zawahiri and Al-Qaeda, you know, actually, you know, trying at one point to go into Dagestan and Chechnya. Most people have forgotten that. We haven't. I mean, the three of us talking. But there was a lot of, uh, of interaction there. And, you know, the, the um, Muslims of the Middle East were horrified, you know, by what Russia did in Chechnya in terms of the destruction. I mean, we're thinking about Gaza. Russia killed 250,000 people, uh, approximately, in, uh, you know, with a, in a population of a million in Chechnya, including their own combatants and, you know, militants. But a lot of these were civilians. It devastated the city of Grozny. It didn't have the kind of knock-on effects that we're kind of seeing from what Israel is doing in Gaza. But, you know, Russia was the bete noir of you know, the Middle East for a period. I mean, eventually Russia worked with Erdogan in Turkey and people like Assad in Syria and the King of Jordan at the time to pacify the Chechens. But, you know, kind of that was a real um, rift uh, with Russia at that point. And, you know, most people in the Middle East haven't also forgotten that Putin helped slaughter Muslims and others in Syria. You know, so again, you know, Putin has to be somewhat careful here. And we also saw in Dagestan, um, back, um, you know, not long after the Hamas attacks um, against Israel at the end of October, what looked like the beginnings of a, a massive pogrom, the kind of thing that we've seen before in, in Russia, an anti-Jewish uh, pogrom, when you had a mob storming the airport in Makhachkala, the capital of Dagestan, uh, wanting to take passengers off um, a plane that had just landed from Tel Aviv. And the North Caucasus is the home of one of the oldest most ancient Jewish populations in the world, not just in, in Russia itself, um, people who settled there, mountain Jews um, in the region, you know, going back into antiquity. And so, you know, this is very problematic. And Russia's had these bloodlettings, these awful um, pogroms, they gave us the word pogrom, you know, frankly, at many different junctures in its imperial and, you know, more even more recent history. And so there's a good deal of concern on Putin's part that, you know, what's happening here could have a backlash. And so, you know, though he plays around in Gaza and Israel, there is a domestic imperative for this as well. But the war is having stresses and strains. And also, the war is militarizing 
more of society. Think about what happened after the war in Afghanistan. All these Afghan vets come back and they were a real source of instability. You've got guns, you know, kind of around all over the place. Unlike the United States, Russia always wants to make uh, sure that the state has a monopoly on violence. That Which it has more guns and than everybody else. Yeah. But now it's a question, do they? Right? And they now allow these the regions to raise their own private military companies. Yeah. They've given heavy weapons to the Rosgvardia. I mean, it really is. I think that is really a significant... Empowering the Cossacks again. Yeah. I mean, this is, you know, what we saw in the Russian Civil War. So, look, we saw with Prigozhin. And, you know, his insurgency in March on Moscow, it's pretty dangerous for yeah. the Russian state to have hand, uh, weapons in the hands of others. It's not that we think that there'll be a military coup, but what about all of these other people running around with... Uh, Chaotic. With I mean, I do chaos. think... Um, chaos, one of right? As Putin's trying to unwind the political system, I think it's unwinding his monopoly on the use of force and potentially exactly. could unwind his own regime. And to me, it very do much does raise the prospect that you get a much more it, it violent really and chaotic. Yeah, because we look at the Balkans in the 1990s. It's the kind of phenomenon that we saw. Again, Russia in the uh, 1980s and night, well, in the 1990s, when you had the withdrawal, you know, from uh, of Afghanistan, we had all of these, you know, disaffected um, Afghan vets, but you also had weapons. And the war in Chechnya had weapons all over the place. You know, basically, there was uh, people trading in weapons. The Chechens got most of their weapons from the Russians. Yep. You know, and then we've seen, you know, some of the sort of things happening in Ukraine. You've also got rifts in Chechnya as well. Not everyone supports um, the, the state under Amazon Kadir. If you've got Chechens who fought on the side of Ukraine, you, you could have an upsurge in violence in places like Chechnya, Ingushetia, Dagestan. I mean, we see the signs of it. And more problems in Bashkortostan and Tatarstan, you know, where people, you know, resent the fact that they had their autonomy rolled back. And at one point in the 90s, they had all these deals with uh, Moscow that they wouldn't get sent into military operations. So, you know, Russia's Muslim population, you know, might have seemed to be co-opted in the years after the end of uh, the Chechen uh, wars. But, you know, I wouldn't hold that out for the longer term. No, I mean, when in even in the work that um, Erica Franz and I had done on leadership mm -hmm. positions, so most likely these longtime leaders die in office. But if they don't, then the next most likely way is through these bottom-up ways. Yes, and exactly. The, the, even though the prospects of a protester look so unlikely at this moment in time, they're very difficult to anticipate. But the civil war is also that bottom-up kind of, you could begin to see unrest in the regions and other things. And I do very much share the view that um, kind of the longer that this goes on, the more, the greater the risk of something more chaotic. Yeah, I mean, you think about back to the Soviet period, <laughs> excuse me, you know, Alexander Lebed, um, the, the, the famous, you know, general, you know, tells the story about Novocherkask when he was a kid, you know, one of those, you know, remote Russian regions where there were a series of protests and the soldiers um, of the, the military shot on the, um, on the protesters. And, you know, there, was, there were many protests across the Soviet Union that were violently repressed. And, you know, we also know through Russian history that sometimes those violent repressions of those protests lead to revolution. This was the classic case of Father Gapon, uh, the kind of leader of protests, ostensibly actually in support of the czars. Uh, and, um, you know, the 1900s, uh, soldiers shot on the protesters. And then you got, you know, the kind of one of the factors that leads yeah. to, you know, the 1905, you know, revolution. Same things, you know, that kind of happened in um, 1917 in the run-up to the election. Uh, people firing on uh, protesters 
you know, Russia is always on the verge of, of having something, as you said, more chaotic that uh, gets uh, set off. Alexei Navalny was poisoned with Novichok because he was out in the Urals and Siberia helping to kind of consolidate protests. Yeah, building the infrastructure. When they're not consolidated, when they're disunited, but if you get too many, you know, protests, you've had protests in Siberia, a lot of the support for Nijetians coming in Siberia and the Urals, if you get a lot of these happening all at once, as you did, you know, towards the end of the Soviet Union, you know, you might get some kind of momentum there. And then people start wondering if Putin's really still in charge, you know, yeah. as he um, as he was before. Uh, you know, uh, this has just been tremendous. And uh, Andrea, I'm, I'm, my patience today is as is, is a very good patience because this is so fascinating. I'm just sitting here drinking it up. Both you guys are doing a wonderful job. So I, I tip my hat to you. And I I just only thing I would just say as a minor as a minor ad is that um, the uh, you know, your point, uh, Fiona, about uh, back to the future in terms of how. Putin is taking uh, Russia and, and 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 trying to uh, recreate in a lot of ways, whether it was Stalin or even before Stalin. I think it's that kind of of uh, uh, trajectory that he's on that really upsets the the Balts, for instance, because if if that's where you know he's trying to go in a lot of ways, then if you're looking at well, who might be next? Um, the three Balts, I'm sure, must feel as they as they do that they're in the that they're in the crosshairs here, and Moldova as well. Uh, and so, I, uh, I I think if Putin continues down this path, he's going to be eventually confronting NATO, and could NATO even deter him from doing something in Narva or whatever the the scenario might be with the Balts? Uh, because I think that's the that's their the the Balts' only chance is that they're now in NATO, uh, and will NATO in fact be there to defend them if this if five years from now, ten years from now, fifteen years from now, that's where Putin or his successor is going is to try to uh, take Russia back to a uh, back to a time when they felt things uh, were were better. Yeah, I mean that's why there's the uptick in articles about this and all that kind of concern that's generating because people are you know looking across the horizon. Now, you know, if um, Sweden, um, you know, Hungary, you know, whatever happens here, you know, is into NATO, I mean, obviously that does shift the perspective on the Baltic Sea. I mean, and it also, you know, opens up a lot of, you know, different planning. I mean, Jim, you know, you were in those, you know, kind of positions in the past thinking about, you know, all that long-term defence planning in NATO. Um, right. You know, these bilateral um, security arrangements in Ukraine become very important, trying to make sure that there's no grey zones you know, left in um, in Europe when it comes to security. Everyone's like, Finland was before NATO. I and mean, people keep sort of talking about Finland and NATO. Finland was always ready to defend itself. But the reason that Finland wanted to join was because Russia became unpredictable. Yeah. Uh, in the sense of, you know, lying about troop movements and then invading and, you know, also then being willing to go rogue on nuclear weapons. I mean, I said earlier, maybe I seemed like contradicting myself, that Putin has become, you know, kind of, uh, or, or is, you know, predictably unpredictable. I mean, he's still predictable. And that's kind of, you know, why, you know, one can look at that trajectory and say, well, if he follows down this path, as like you said, and people like Patrick and others are on the same page and, you know, so the successes from that, you know, security apparatus, I mean, this is kind of, you know, what we look like. We've gone back to that kind of past of confrontation. There's another wrinkle to this where actually I think could be problematic in a different way, Right. It's just possible, if because you think about the sweep of Russian history and all kinds of things have happened in Russia. You've had more reactionary governments following on, you know, from reactionary governments, or you've had a complete flip. I mean, we've had that many times, right? 
Uh, and, you know, we could start reiterating, you know, all of these and uh, there's no need. But Putin still has a very technocratic government around him. You know, we talked before about how Trump wants to get rid of the state. Uh, and But Putin has a very good state apparatus in many respects. He's got a crack head of the central bank. He's got all kinds of serious professional people in the presidential administration. Um, it's not just all, you know, kind of hard liners. He's got people who know how to run a country. He's got a technocratic, very capable and efficient prime minister in the form of Mr. Mishustin. Right. Then it's not impossible to think that Russia suddenly ends up with a technocratic government because something happens to Putin. And, that you know, and then that's the way they decide to go. I mean, Khrushchev it was the way, more chaotic, you know, that they decided to go in the 1950s. You know, it wasn't, you know, where it could have, could have gone, for example, Gorbachev. You know, it was kind of the way, you know, that things went in the 1980s, you know, for example, we had Yeltsin and, you know, attempts at reform. What if we get that, you know, kind of technocratic government? Then all the exiles, I mean, I don't know what happens to Navalny in this context, but, you know, because he's still a real contender there. But all those exiles, you know, who are there, uh, you know, out there in Berlin and London and here and elsewhere have been talking about reforming the Russian system. And so it looks like the 1990s again. You got all these people coming back and they're going to try to make it more of a parliamentary, you know, kind of uh, democracy or maybe, you know, balance things out. But they won't want to then also, you know, have reparations and they won't want to, um, you know, kind of uh, resolve what's been going on in Ukraine. Accountability for war crimes. They'll need support for yeah. new Russia. And we'll be all in the, look what happened in the 1990s. You didn't support, you didn't step up. Yeah. So then what happens? That's also a question, right? Do we give, you know, we just decide that, um, you know, kind of the new independent uh, Russia with a technocratic government should just be forgiven, you know, all sins of the past? Yeah. yeah. Like, you know, kind of Europe is left carrying the, you know, the baby of, you know, the, the shattered, you know, uh, European security, the broken Ukraine. And then also being said, well, the first time around, you didn't do a Marshall Plan for Russia. Yeah. You know, now you need to kind of move forward and, you know, do what you didn't do before, a new, you know, agreement, a new security pact with Russia, support for Russia, reversing, you know, sanctions, you know, reversing all of this. That could be a real, you know, dilemma. And it's not impossible, okay. right? Yeah. And I, I just want to put definitely. it out there that we should be thinking yeah. about it. Sure. Yeah. There'll definitely be parts of Europe and, you know, that want to be able to, you know, test the new government and, you know, hang out a couple of fig leaves and see. But I do think the most kind of promising or most effective way to deal with that is if we in the West, the United States and Europe can agree, like what, what are our conditions for a better relationship with Russia? And they really shouldn't be all that different depending on who the leader is. And so if we're clear about what we need in order to see relations restored, I think it can help maintain some of the cohesion or, I don't know, differing impulses across different parts of Europe that might want to explore what this new government is versus the other parts, the Eastern Europeans who say, you know, you cut off the head of the snake, it just grows back. So I so it, it I mean, it will be challenging, but it's something that we can easily prepare for and begin understanding what our conditions are for a better relationship with Russia. And you know what's interesting about that? That's actually, obviously, as you were speaking, and I'm thinking about the podcasters Brussels Sprouts, and we're thinking about, you know, the Europeans. That's what they should be doing with the United States, right? <laughs> yeah. No matter what yes, happens, yes, Europe should be thinking about its own security, its own resilience. Because, uh, you know, even if Trump doesn't get back in, you can't keep expecting the United States to literally carry the can and the responsibility for everything. Yeah. I mean, this was... 
a point that has gone through administrations going back, you know, to the 60s in the United States, just saying, come on, guys, you know, the United States cannot just keep sending in the cavalry. I was in 1918 and, you know, now in the 1940s and, you know, bailing, you know, Europe out. And, you know, if we're trying to build up our resilience, you know, Europe has to step up. I mean, we see that in many respects on, uh, I, know, I know Schultenberg's on his way, you know, to sort of talk to everybody about this. We are seeing Europeans step up. But it's also on how Europeans, you know, position themselves, you know, how they work together politically and economically and, uh, you know, how they're dealing with these larger issues, not just on uh, the military responsibility. It can't be that, you know, Europe is constantly looking to the United States every five seconds, you know, for, you know, leadership is one thing, but, you know, just, you know, for the United States taking responsibility. At the beginning of December, I was on a trip in Europe. And I think they were trying to provoke me in a discussion, but I had a discussion with, you know, kind of uh, basically the foreign ministry of a, of a not insignificant state. And when I was talking about this kind of thing of European Europeans themselves included stepping up, didn't necessarily mean, you know, for every country, particularly if they were neutral and in a military sense, you know, militarily, but diplomatically and economically and politically and we're trying to change things. He said, well, why? The United States has taken responsibility for all of this. It's on the US. And I was like, come on. You know, that is just ridiculous. That's like, you know, when people stand up in a line and people say, well, someone volunteer and everyone steps back. That's, yeah. that's just not the case. And that's exactly why people around Trump and Trump himself are so furious, more likely, you know, to talk down NATO because he's not wrong in thinking that there's a bit of a ripoff going on there, you know, yeah. in terms of um, responsibility and putting everything, you know, on the United States and Previous administrations have been talking about this. The Obama administration laid it all out in the Wales Summit for NATO. Yeah, and Gates well, gave... This is something that we absolutely have to address. So Europeans should be thinking, like we have to think about Russia, no matter what happens in 2024 in the United States, shouldn't they yeah. really be thinking about the Brussels sprout, sprouting up, you know, becoming yeah. you know, something more meaningful and actually yeah. being more resilient and more capable of taking care of European security? And, you know, we've been saying that to visiting uh, European leadership. But as you know, they've been flooding into town. And that's really been what we've been saying to them. And there's there's a there's an acknowledgement of that. But then there's a tendency to throw their hands up and go, yeah, but we how can we do it? We just you know, there seems to be this feeling that it's too big a job. And, and so there's a leadership issue, I think, in Europe where if there was some stronger leadership that could that could bring everyone together as a continent and then head in a direction that you're laying out. I think that I think that's what's missing. Is... I, think, I think you do it in chunks though, Jim. And in a yeah. way, what Ukraine's trying to do now um, yeah. is a way forward, right? People like Neil Melvin at Rusi um, have been talking about mini-lateralism, right? Yeah. And I mean, that sounds kind of cute and you know whatever else, but what he's meaning is divided up into regional chunks. So you've got the JEF, the Joint Expeditionary Force, you know, up in the northern part of Europe. You right. know, where the Scandinavian, you know, countries, you know, kind of work closely together. You could include the UK in all of that. Obviously, well, the UK is part of this, but, you know, the Baltic states and Ukraine could be, you know, part of those kinds of systems. You know, we actually always have had a sort of sub-regional approach within, you know, NATO. So we thought, think about, okay, the Baltics, as you said now, let's focus on that. The Black Sea, we have to do something in the Black Sea, though, you know, we're somewhat stymied with, you know, some of the thinking about, um, you know, this from some of the other um, uh, states around the periphery there, and, you know, how in easily they're influenced by Russia or scared off by uh, Russia. You know, we used to have the Weimar and the Visegrad and all these other kind of groupings. Let's try to kind of uh, 
do it in that regard, uh, in that fashion rather, you know, thinking about this um, as um, different chunks or kind of regional approaches and then try to put this together. And of course, that's what Ukraine is trying to do now with its bilateral defensive agreements. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. And you can really see those regions when you're working at NATO, uh, these blocks that are regional, the Southern Europeans, you know, Italy, Spain, Greece, uh, Turkey is off on its own. But uh, but it's it's amazing uh, that that there is that substructure that they need to, to organize and help them take things forward. But actually, I'm, Turkey's just, you know, tried to improve its relationship with Greece. Let's test the proposition that they actually mean that, right? Right. Right, Maybe, right. You know, and and of course, that's been a kind of bit of an element in uh, NATO. You know, if uh, Turkey didn't get their F-35s, maybe Greece would get them. But, you know, there's still not going to be always that rivalry and competition. But let's right. test the proposition that you could think, you know, differently about the Eastern Med. If, yeah. you know, Turkey and Greece are in, you know, different set of relationships. That's exactly right. Well, I love actually that this conversation on Russia came around to like, what do we do? And it kind of starts with us and our resilience and the leadership and the, the ownership of all of the problems. So I think it's actually like quite the perfect end um, to the conversation where we started. Um, and so I am I appreciate it that it went in this direction. Um, we're, we've kept you longer than we had promised, Fiona, and we appreciate you being so generous with your time and definitely um, very thankful that you joined us for this conversation. So thank you very much. Yeah, well, thank, thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of Brussels Sprouts brought to you by the Transatlantic Security Team at the Center for a New American Security. You can find all of our previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And please remember to rate and review Brussels Sprouts so that new listeners are able to find the show.